Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning and welcome to this morning's show. I'm Sarah Gon. This is the show for you to catch up on your your political information, opinion, and general wodem. I think, I, I can't even think of the right word for it. Um, being at, Having just been at stage six, apparently we are now at stage five on the low shedding stakes. It's clearly an indication of how the worse the problem gets, the, the more the economy grinds ever, ever to a halt. And our president, bless him, rushed back from the Queen's lavish and very impressive funeral yesterday to do what I'm not exactly sure. And I don't, you know, it's not as if he's in that position where his return to face a crisis gives us anything that remotely resembles confidence. But we will discuss the energy issue in a little more detail. It's just so pressing. I don't know if any of you had the absolute misfortune of seeing either the video or a photograph of the aftermath of this truck crash in Pongola. I saw both. And the it's, well, what can I say? It's, 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 a, it's a typically horrifying South African vehicle crash scene. But most interesting, because of having drive, we drive around the country quite often, and one of the scariest things is when a truck overtakes another truck, but not there aren't two lanes available to do it on, it's a single lane road. And this truck did what South Africans do best, which is everything wrong. He overtook a large coal truck. So the, the truck he was overtaking was large to start with. And he overtook the other truck on a double line. So in other words, his visibility for oncoming traffic would have been nil. And I assume he was probably unladen because he was going really fast. I mean, you know, usually when trucks overtake trucks, they sort of inch past uh, each other, you know, barely going faster than the truck next to him. Not this guy. He was going full tilt, accelerating past this guy and accelerated straight into this poor oncoming bucky, which resulted in the deaths of 21 people, including 19 children between the ages of 5 and 12. So it doesn't, we, we, can't, we can't really begin to, to comprehend the horror of this, the, 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 breaking, the, the breaking of rules that are there for a reason, the wonder whether the truck driver either cared, knew, or neither one nor the other. But one resident from the area um, said that one of the contributors to an accident like this is there are way too many trucks on the road. And there are way too many trucks on the road because the transnet railway lines are not working properly. They aren't, there's some are missing, been damaged, been stolen. In other words, because the the biggest, probably one of the biggest, um, let's say, colonial legacies that we, we, benefit, we benefited from, which was the railways. I mean, the railways is a huge undertaking, is virtually... It's virtually dormant because of the amount of destruction and mismanagement, etc. And of course, the uh, you know these 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 
this, these goods should not be traveling by truck. We should not have as many trucks on the road, certainly not ca- covering these huge distances. And aside from anything else, and the, the damage to the roads is, is uh, incrementally huge um, when you've got large trucks going over essentially country roads. And to try and fix them and to try and fill the potholes is nigh impossible. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I happened to pick up on WhatsApp yesterday an article that was written a little while ago, but dealt with the interesting fact that the police lose eight times more guns than civilians. The uh, author, Gideon Hubert, was asked to basically investigate the, the comparative uh, firearm losses suffered by the SAPs and, uh, and private citizens. And in the six-year period from 2005 to 2011, SAPS lost a total of 18,196 firearms, which equals approximately 3,030 firearms per year. It also revealed that between 2009 and 2014, AfriForum revealed that SAPS lost 7,892 firearms, which averages around 1,578 per annum. In the 2014-2015 cycle, SAPS personnel lost an average of between 1,045 to 2,007 firearms per 100,000 officers every year. Now, they couldn't obviously tell what the exact number of civilian firearms were, but they estimate that the number was between 2.5 and 3 million, right? And we're looking at that number of Firearms in the possession of almost as many firearm owners, some will obviously will have collected more, compared to the, I don't know, I think it's 150,000, 160,000 odd policemen. The the difference apparently in the recovery rate is also very important. The sooner a gun is lost or stolen, it is... it, it can be recovered. And the less opportunity there is for it to be used in the commission of violent crime. But as we know, the police, through the officers of their um, gun, register, gun registry in Gauteng, spent years selling guns to gangs in the Cape. And we, we I mean, it, 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 to me, it is just so symptomatic of everything that is rotten in the in the area of governance that needs most to be <clears throat> upright um, and oh, too, too terrible to think about but there we have it the the the, the uh, the police are losing their guns hand over fist. And one view was that they're not, you don't really lose a gun. You either have it stolen or more likely in the case of the police, you sell it. So the assumption is probably valid that uh, that these that these things get sold. Now, in light of the fact that uh, my guest is already online, I'm going to come on five minutes early with him um, and t- to start the, uh, to start, to commence the interview, shall we say. Ian is going to discuss with me an aspect that we have discussed once or twice before, but is reaching uh, extraordinary proportions. We talked about the creeping into particularly elite private schools, and but not 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 only, but largely the elite private schools in this country, 
of critical race theory. Uh, through the form, it's usually described as, uh, what do they call it, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, they always use phrases that are, you know sound very positive. You know, the, the, uh, let me sum, the, summarize critical race theory as this. The theory oh. is that the, the situation that, that blacks face is caused, uh, it has two links. One is that it's, the racism they experience is committed by whites uh, as a result of the White's sense of white supremacy um, and, their dis and their disregard for blacks. But that in itself is not alone. In order to really, to really hamper the position of blacks in society, there has to be the power element. And that is the fact that the, the, the whiteness and the supremacy and everything related to it, together with the exercise of power, causes blacks in particular and, and other minority groups to be kept down, um, not, not to reach the equal status to whites, um, to be forever uh, sort of on the back foot in the provision of all services and all benefits. I'm putting it probably as pretty much simply as I can. Now, what that's happened is that that thesis has been used to almost create a curriculum in school to, to get children to understand each other and to be more inclusive and understand each other's cultures. But what it does mean is that in diversity, what you're looking at is not a diversity of pupils of all kinds in school. It is about appreciating and recognizing the value of black students or gay students or, or, or whatever the target group may be. And the idea is that the, the one must work to create Equity, which is actually what they mean is equality of outcomes. In other words, whatever you do at the start must ensure that at the end of the, of the day, outcomes reached by all, across all, all, color, all colors is equal. And then inclusion is not what it says. Basically, by inclusion, what invariably happens is that there's a, there's a, there's a separation of black students from white students in order that black students can be affirmed and essentially white students unaffirmed, if there's, if there's a word, such a word. And by that they mean is that by virtue of them being white, and I mean literally by virtue of the color of their skin, they are essentially deemed to be imbued with all the faults of their predecessors or not even their predecessors who committed the acts of discrimination and segregation from which the black population now suffers. Now what's important to understand is that the whole thesis of CRT and certainly the practical implication is a an American phenomenon and it has regard to the position of American of American blacks who are about 14% of the population in other words they are a minority in South Africa we have a situation where 80 80% 80 of South Africans are are black Africans at 9% are white. But the argument is being used that somehow white culture, the way of managing things, managing schools, creating an ethos, is still inherently white and it must change. I think that's as best description as I, as I can get. Now, my guest Ian McLeod has studied at UCT and Rhodes as well as the Gordon Institute of Business Science where he obtained his MBA. He returned to Gibbs and looked after graduating, to help launch the school's Center for African Management and Markets and to dr drive an exploration 
into the viability of a business family network for Africa housed at Gibbs. He's run Five Comrades. He's written his bike 900 kilometers. Um, the man obviously desperately needs help. Welcome to HFM, Ian. Uh, hi, Sarah. Thanks for that uh, introduction. <laughs> I, I declare I a note of concern. Um, in, <laughs> given, given your perhaps your areas of study and your areas of, 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 of business practice, what... How did you become aware of this implementation of the thesis of critical race theory or diversity, equity, inclusion in schools? And when did it start? What made it perturb you? Yeah, I think it's not so much my my work and other experience. Uh, I think all of us start seeing these things emerging. And we see it, we certainly see it at work. Uh, I think BEE is is one of the troubling elements and we see these things emerging um i think i encountered the the, the school element probably on, on social media initially and it, uh, it it bothered me for for all the same reasons that any radical thinking bothers me uh, it's it's an obsession nobody nobody really opposes uh, sensible approaches to uh, you know, opposing any sort of bigotry, uh, and these are tough race and sex issues. But I think it's really the, the obsession and the reliance on, uh, frankly, some some quite mad academic models. And, and I think it was the the hypocrisy and the just the the incongruency of the the thinking that really sparked me, or, or to use their words, uh, uh, triggered me. Hi FM. 101.9 megahertz of life. Ian, before I ask for your practical experience um, of seeing the disaster that the implementation of this sort of program is in schools, I'd just like to put out and ask you to comment. I think for most people, I dare say for most people, the instinct is that when discrimination or disadvantage has, has been seen in the society, the natural instinct both at school level and beyond would be to find ways to bring people of different racial groups different um, sexual identities different perception you know sort of the outsiders is to create a, a sense of understanding for kids to understand what is what is the right approach to take what is the wrong approach to take understand where people are coming from why their cultures are different why they have might have different approaches to things in other words the idea for me and and i was very involved in schools for many years so i saw it happen well in a decade ago let's put it that way before this became a, a, a big thing was the idea was that you you try to you, you try to make these changes happen you try to encourage them um, you disciplined children for being racist or uh, slurs or bullying. And otherwise, then children left to essentially get it together themselves. And I found children do, by and large. They, they, the incidents such as, as they occurred were, were unusual and rare. Um, kids would find that equality, that, that sense that, 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 that everyone has equal rights, should be equally uh, uh, responded to. But at the same time, they have different sets of talents and skills, and that's okay too because 
people play a different role in a school and people who are not as skilled as other kids will by and large admire perhaps the 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 the, the boy who who keeps getting you know best batsman for 10 years running it's it's in other words given the space with a little bit of guidance children find their space and they find their way and they find each other yep i agree i i think I think, you know, what I oppose is the social engineering, which is what, mm. what is being done. They're trying to perfect society. And firstly, I think that's impossible. Secondly, I think it causes worse outcomes. In my opinion, in my, certainly in my school experience. Ian, are you with us? Ah, sorry, that's bound to happen. I mean, hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Well, Ian, now that we've established that, <laughs> would you proceed to give us an idea of what go- what goes wrong with these with these with the social engineering? Yeah, so I think you know I'd contrast it with what I think is a far better approach is to obviously, as you say, uh, don't accept or endorse bad behaviour, but we all know what that is, uh, and to you know I think I think the best way is to have a let the guys play rugby and chess and sing in the choir together, uh, be in class together. And I think that is, that's the way humans live and interact and, and learn. What I see happening at the extreme, uh, and, and it's, it's becoming more mainstream, is the inclusion of, of radical academic models. Uh, and, and you get things like uh, micro, microaggressions. And and well, what what is a microaggression? Mm. Uh, it, it's something that well, the academics will tell you they know what it means, but how do you translate that to the school where a teacher is going to implement it? And why is that better than a teacher simply saying, well, if you say something a little bit nasty, the teacher should intervene? And so I, th- I think there's this vast. Uh, radical ideology uh, that has crept in and is now creeping deeper and deeper into the mainstream. Before I go on to your specific uh, um, um, experience, there are just two things. One is I think you're right about these, this sort of the, the creep of, of a radical ideology because essentially it is a non-individualist, conformist ideology and it, it, it's it is ultimately, and it, it has as, it, as its end game, a Marxist society. Uh, capitalism must be overthrown. That may not be necessarily sp- uh, spoken out, but that's certainly what, what, what appears in the literature. The, the, the other thing is that, is, is, is that the creep into the schools is often insidious. Parents aren't aware of, of it until it's kind of crept in. But the problem, the biggest problem I find, and and I'd be interested in your comments on this, is that it's a very difficult issue for a parent, a single parent or a couple, to fight on their own because they are up against both a school management and often a group of parents, governing body, a range of people who support the implementation of of, of this theory. And so essentially, parents are be- parents need to band together in order to fight this. But it's almost impossible to get it to happen. But you did something. What did you do? Yeah, so I'm in the somewhat 
a fortunate position in that I'm not under that pressure. Uh, and I, I think, as you say, a parent who speaks out uh, probably gets uninvited from parties and, and worse. Uh, so I'm fortunate I, I can speak out. And, and, and so I've written a few pieces uh, for The Daily Friend. Uh, and I produced, uh, I wrote a list of 16 questions. Uh, that I published as a, as a as an open letter, and and so you know you mentioned governance, getting information from schools, uh, and and that's really what I want. I, I try and boil it down to governance and contract, and very often I find these schools just have no idea of good governance. They get together and they decide things, uh, and they force things through. Uh, and so my questions are, are really quite, in some ways, bland and boring. I, I ask, well, what is your proof of this? Do you have case studies that have demonstrated that this type of policy works well? How much money have you spent on this? And it's been like pulling teeth. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so that's been my approach is to, to speak out. And I think I think the the way it will be resolved, I agree with you. I think parents have got to become a little bit emboldened to ask questions. Uh, I do have some parents coming to me quietly, uh, emailing me or messaging me saying, I, I read your piece, thank you. Uh, I can't really speak out. Uh, and that's the sort of environment we're dealing with. Parents are, are afraid to, to speak speak out because this is a, it, it's an unpleasant uh, ideology, I think. And as you say, it's, it, it divides you up uh, into race, and sex and so on and it's, it's they call themselves inclusive but i find these policies uh, highly divisive yeah it's funny that it's almost like if, whatever language they use is almost the opposite of what they mean and certainly they not usually they don't mean what we um, mean by the words that are used. Um, can I clarify, Ian? Uh, this the, you raise issues with school that you were the old, you were an old an old boy, so you d you do have a an interest. Uh, can you just give us an idea of how that uh, you know how that comes about? Yeah, so I, I raised the letter with with St. Stephen's in Johannesburg, uh, where where I went. Uh, I finished there longer ago than I'd like, two thousand two. And, and so one question that pops up is, do I have an axe to grind? Uh, and, and no, I had, a, I had a pretty good time there, ups and downs like, like any kid. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not the, the guy who sings the school song at, at uh, the afternoon braai, uh, but, but I have no, no axe to grind. I have some affinity. Um, my approach really is, is I suppose, to, to take, a, take a high-profile case and, and, and make that the locus of, of my mm -hmm. debate. Without, I suppose the caution is you don't want to come across as, as bullying or uh, or having an axe to grind. Uh, so I, I do make a general debate as well. But but uh, I think since Stithians has been, they've they've they have made an effort to be the leader in this. Uh, and so I think mm -hmm. if you want to be the, the trailblazer, uh, you've got to take the take the heat of of the, the arguments and the questions. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's. In, I, I mean, I would have assumed, and interested to hear. I would assume that the, just the very approach, the raising of the questions, would have would have resulted in a, a defensive response. So look, they they their initial response, and, and they've said this to me uh, uh, later on, was we don't respond to unsolicited online 
petitions uh, and things like that. Um, I have since engaged, I, I had a meeting with the, the headmistress of the girls' school. Since so Slithians is actually uh, probably six or seven schools, uh, ranging from your, your little grade RR up to two high schools, two primary schools. So I have met with in person with the headmistress of the girls' school. I've engaged on email with um, Celeste Gallardi, who's the rector. Mm. Uh, she has sent me answers to the uh, 16 questions via email, and I have returned with, with requests for clarity. Um, I, I think several of the answers, some were fine, some were, were confusing, and some were, were I think, problematic. So mm. I've asked for clarity. Uh, I'll give her some time to engage on that, um, and I'll, I'll write another piece uh, updating people once once I've got clarity on that. I see that um, bishops uh, in Cape Town, which is, I suppose, an, an elite school amongst elite schools, which has gone through a lot of uh, problem with with some of the stuff that that uh, eighty parents have signed a letter to the principal complaining about issues such as these. I'm, I'm not as yet sure what, if any, response they have been given. But that, that, that's, a sort of, that's certainly a number of parents that, you, that, that can take an issue on. They, there being too many to have their child or their children victimized by the, uh, by the school management. But what's, uh, what's come out is that leaping to the defense of the principal is Rachel Colise, Asia Colise's wife, um, saying, no, you know, basically this is a good thing and it must continue and blah, blah, blah. I'm a little concerned that someone who has, let's shall we say, r relative celebrity status would kind of, would end up being in a position on behalf of the principal to quash the efforts by the 80 parents who are very unhappy with what's going on. Does there tend to be sort of a a high to high level status person involved in this sort of thing either on the governing body or in the parent body pushing for pushing for these changes yes on bishops I, I i'm not sure who signed what hmm. i think there were a couple of letters that went back and forth i think one was unsigned uh, another signed and i think the problem there is is really the straw manning i think hmm. and i find this i say I have a question about the particular way you're doing uh, this. And they say, mm. oh, but that's homophobic. I say, no, well, yeah. I, I'm actually not, not at all. Uh, I had a particular question uh, about is this the most effective way? Uh, do you have evidence that it works? What does it cost, et cetera? Um, I think you do get – you certainly get big personalities that get involved. Mm. And I think one, one, one way that happens is that you get – and this is demonstrated with case studies in the U.S. You, you get so, – so I don't say this about any particular school, but mm. you do get a radical who arrives, uh, mm. one teacher, and they may be, you know, your typical Ph.D. in uh, gender studies mm. from a liberal arts college in America. Uh, and, and this teacher, you know, to apply the, the term that uh, Gad Saad uses in his book, The Parasitic Mind mm. – uh, Starts uh, uh, sowing these these radical ideas, uh, and and they spread like like mind parasites. Mm, uh, mm. So I think that's that's the one type of big personality that that not not, not a celebrity, but mm. a sort of one person who can really spark this thing off, uh, and and then it takes on a life of its own. 
And then, yes, I think you, you do get cases where a celebrity starts wielding that, that power. And we, we often see that play out on, on social media. But I think the bigger problem, actually, is the, the person who's under the radar, uh, who quietly is meant to be teaching maths, uh, but mm. is, in fact, invoking what they call social-emotional learning, for example. Um, yeah. and, and, in fact, indoctrinating, indoctrinating kids uh, far from the view of, of parents, uh, of, of any form of governance. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Ian, the other sort of common process I've seen, and it, it looks very, very manufactured because it's happened in more than one school, <coughs> is an allegation of racism is made. The children go out in protest. The EFF usually pitches up very soon thereafter. All the, all the right terminology is used. The school management is faced with a, with a situation it's never had before. It doesn't know the concepts. You know, it's, it's, it's completely blind. And somebody, often a, a, a fairly radical parent, will recommend the services of a consultant on this issue. And these consultants come imbued with all sorts of connections to American institutions that promote uh, CRT in schools, in education, um, etc. And these people come in and the, the advantage they have is they have ostensible expertise. They know what they're talking about. They know how to deal with the kids. And, and usually it's under their guise that the kids start being split up and being conditioned into the I am superior victim and I am the inferior, inferior oppressor. Then surely this leaves this leaves the schools at a greatest advantage because uh, management and teachers go with it because they know they know nothing about it so they, they they see experts coming in being recommended in to save them. Yeah, the, the consultants are a big are a big issue, and there there are a handful that seem to be the hot shots, the go to. Mm. Uh, they they come on top dollar, I believe, uh, and they'll they'll they'll. They'll do all the corporates and and the big schools, and yes, I, I think you know this. I think it, it it's a, it's a process to, to really understand the the dangers of the critical race theory, woke, uh, etc. And I think parents parents are very 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 busy. They do their best. They have limited time. Most uh, haven't sat down like some of us have done and, and dived into this. And and I think they, a lot of the terminology uh, you mentioned earlier, a lot of the terminology does sound very nice. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to stop a microaggression? Uh, who would oppose uh, being inclusive? Um, but I'm I'm rereading 1984 at the moment, and new this sort of new speak uh, is dangerous. And I think the consultants are are very good at bamboozling. They have all the lingo. And you can look around the world, it's all the same lingo. Uh, it all comes from, you can trace it back to a handful of, of, of academics from the 60s seems to be a, have been a big time, but, but even but Marxian thinking as well. I'm told one or two of these consultants have, have statues of Marx in their, in their offices, uh, which is, is they're welcome to do, but is, is a bit concerning. <laughs> Uh, yes. But yes, I think the consultants go in and sow, sow some very dangerous seeds. No, no, it's a big thing, and, and we, we are looking we, will, we are looking in that, at that in uh, greater detail, which we will which we will come to. Um, 
I think, well, um, your microaggressions um, amuses me to some extent because, you know, while a child may be hurt by something another child says, if you don't know at all that what you've said or done is a microaggression, your, your only response if you're accused of something and it's not dealt with properly is to say nothing at all. Uh, so what's, what's, was there a question there, Sarah? Yeah, no, essentially I just, uh, I just, sorry, I should have put it as a question, but whether <laughs> no your experiences, whether your experience has been that kids who are accused of things as amorphous as microaggressions tend to end up retreating from participation in class um, in anywhere where there's an interaction between black kids and white kids. Oh, so, so I can't really speak about on the ground. Uh, I, I can't speak to, to that sort of thing. Based on, on chats with some parents, mm. kids who have been accused of racism and, and later uh, completely exonerated, it, it's damaging. Um, I mean, of course, <laughs> racism itself is also damaging, but that, that doesn't mean false accusations uh, are not damaging. And yes, I, I think I think kids are, you know, they're forced to defend themselves publicly against racist accusations, and and often trumped up trumped up ones, uh, end up moving schools, etc. Uh, and and but yes, I, I can't I can't comment on on uh, on the ground if you like. From what you're saying, and particularly about sort of teachers and consultants having busts of Karl Marx in their offices. It seems to suggest, and I don't think you agree with me, that it, it is the it, there is there is that Marxist ideology underlying everything, because because the so so little of this seems to make sense. It's it seems so as we said at the beginning, it, it doesn't tie into what we would logically reasonably see as being the way to to deal with the issues of of, of discrimination. Yeah, I, I was chatting to someone last week, and and. What we sort of concluded was that getting to the conclusion that this is Marxism is, is sort of the end. Mm. And it takes a long time because at first someone says to you, this is this is very Marxian. And you go, oh, hold on, surely not. Uh, we, we, nobody teaches Marx in yeah. South African economics departments. And this is a school that uh, aims at, at where the, the parents are, are captains of industry and they're churning out kids at, who go to uh, – commerce department but you gradually go through this process and you see more and more and you, you read more and more uh, and, and you do get to the point i think uh, certainly i have where you realize uh, it's all about dividing people up into into groups uh not not necessarily uh you know, capitalists and working working class but nonetheless the same applies you're being divided up uh, according to your race or whatever it may be and and you're not treated as an individual. You're treated as as part of this group fundamentally. Um, and and so I'm I'm quite confident that that Marxism is is a is a is a very good model to uh, to apply. Mm. No, I think um, I think I think I could probably put it this way: that if the basis, particularly, well, let's talk about race because that is the dominant um, issue. But if you're actually going to judge the innate value quality of a person and you, you're going to use this color of their skin to do so that suggests that you're looking to some to a, a political system that is if, if not if not using class is using um, 
victimhood or alleged victimhood as the basis for discrimination. Essentially, you inverting your proposal is to invert the. Um, the, the traditional sort of Marxian idea of, of, of class distinction with victim with victimhood as such, and I think it was Lenin who said that uh, you know if you give him a child before the before the age of eight, you've got a Marxist for life, and uh, maybe that's exactly why this is coming about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to to invoke any sort of political leaning in in a school. Uh, is is unacceptable. Uh, that and again, that doesn't condone uh, shielding them from politics. It it, it just mm. means uh, deal with it in a, in a reasonable way at the at the right um, age and and in a balanced way. Um, Basically, I think I think it's about um, it's about teaching about political theory and political systems, not teaching with them. Yes, that's right. And I think and perhaps taking that slightly more broadly is. Telling them what to think, not not teaching them how to think. Um, uh, you you look at what they're teaching them, and it, even if you agree, uh, let's say you did agree with what they were teaching them, if you look at it, they are not teaching anything else. Uh, they're teaching one thing, uh, how to apply it, um, and they're not teaching them the foundational principles that would enable them to uh, to to analyze these things and and, and make their own calls. In other words, to be individuals. Um, Ian, uh, I'll have to end it there, but thank you very much for coming on. I think from, what, from everything you're saying, we have a fight on our hands on this issue. We do. Thanks for having me, Siri. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Uh, apologies to the, to the staggered nature of the interview. Um, there appear to be technical and other gremlins uh, affecting us um, in an unseemly manner. I wanted to just raise an issue that came out of this dreadful truck crash that I, I talked about. Operation Dudula in KwaZulu-Natal has repeated calls for transport operators to stop hiring foreign national drivers, foreigners, and use. they have used this particular crash as a basis to make this call. Now, Operation Dudula has done taken a very unsavory approach generally one is that it does campaign against foreign nationals which is a very easy flashpoint in south african politics uh, through the growth creating substantial xenophobia which can lead to violence and worse um but what they've been also been doing is they've going into businesses to ask you know for the the, the identity of people's employees and similar such actions, um, which I would say, I mean, I would say the police should put a stop to because it's none of their business uh, who people employ. But I haven't yet seen a any indication of whether this, the driver of this particular truck, who's now going to be charged with at least with 21 counts of manslaughter, if not murder, was foreign or not. I think the only thing I know about him personally, I think his name is uh, Sibusiso Siaya. Um, please, you know, I open to correction on that. But there is nothing in the reports that say that this particular that this particular driver was a foreign national. Which means that whether it was or whether it wasn't, the rules of the road have to be obeyed, and they have to be obeyed by truckers, whoever drives them. 
And it the, the, it strikes me that they're being very opportunist because they, the Operation Dudula is going to visit the families, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. While one understands in a high level, high in an area in a in period of high unemployment, the people feel desperate and may feel the jobs are being taken away from them and services are being used by foreigners. Which doesn't about the jobs, but services w- will be used. It's a tinderbox, so it's an issue that has to be dealt with very carefully, and the government should sure as hell deal a lot more carefully with it than it does. And I, if if this, if as I say, it's irrelevant whether the driver was a foreign driver or not. But if he was, this is an ideal opportunity to cause a great deal of mischief. And it, as far as I'm concerned, it's got to be condemned in every sense and for every reason. On that sober note, uh, thank you for joining me. And um, I look forward to seeing you next week and hopefully a sort of cleaner, neater, tidier line for our guest. Join me then. Thanks.